Yeah, good morning. I'm excited to share with you this morning. Um, I promise I'm not holding the new preacher hostage until I got a turn. Um, we are having a great time in that process. This morning is not about that process. This morning is about John chapter 9. I want to start off with a question this morning. Do you remember the first time that you came into this church? The very first time you came through those doors, um, I came in through those set of doors my first time. Lizzie and I walked in and we sat in this middle section just behind the break. I remember thinking like, man, this building is huge. There's a big room that we have um, to have church in. And then I remember thinking, man, these pews are really comfortable. Like these are quality cushions. Um, that was nearly 11 years ago. Um, by my math, like 500 and something Sundays ago. And um, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking of all those 500 Sundays, I've never seen him dress this nicely. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. We, we got these on this morning. I didn't get to choose my outfit. Um, my wife actually cracked out the iron and got my pants ready. And so I feel like I'm, I'm ready to share my thoughts. Um, from my, from myself and from my, my small family, um, I do want to say that the joy and the confidence that we have in this life is because of Christ's presence in our life. And the exciting thing is that so much of that presence of Christ in our life is through this church. Um, so thank you for pouring into us. Um, thank you for pouring into our kids. And please continue to do that. All right, we are going over um, John chapter 9 this morning. This is a, a great chapter. It's, it's about Jesus healing the blind man. There are some clutch moments in this chapter that we're going to cover. Um, we're going to talk about two individuals. The first one is a, a personal hero of mine. And then, obviously, we're going to cover the blind man uh, in John chapter 9. In this life, we, um, we strive for a smooth journey. Um, we, we want a road surface that is smooth, so smooth that you can almost, you know, you get that smell, even if your windows are up in your car, you can smell new asphalt. It's got a very distinct smell. When you smell new asphalt, you know that you are cruising on a smooth road, right? We want a smooth road for the journey. We want a new car and probably a, a, a tank full of gas, right? We feel like our cars run better that way. And, um... We, we want that throughout our lives. We want our lives to go upward and to the right without any problems. I got to thinking about that. The potholes that we have in life, we don't seek them out, but the potholes are what make your life exciting, right? Um, they keep us on our toes. They make us pay attention. And as we hit these potholes in life, it feels like we're tripping and we're stumbling and we're hitting our toes and we're landing on our bottoms, falling up off the floor. Um, but it's good because of who we're doing that with. We have that spirit of Christ with us. So yes, we're tripping and we're stumbling, but we're doing that with the spirit. And so it feels, it feels good. But I think when the world sees that, it sees that you've fallen down. It sees that you've had an issue. And the world looks at that and says, oh man, you've fallen down. Are you Okay. And as Christians, we're saying, yes, we fell down, but we fell down with the Spirit, right? And we're probably going to fall down again with the Spirit, and we, we're kind of okay with that. Um, 
and I think that's confusing to the world, the visual that I have on this is like we're standing on a big checkerboard and we're on our square and we're looking for the next square that we're going to move to and we're considering the options and God says, yes, we're moving to that one right over there. And then we pivot and we look at that one and we say, okay, God, I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm ready to do this. Let's do this on the count of three. All right, one, two. And then before you hit three, God's like, no, we're going now. And he moves you to that square and you kind of trip there and you stumble there. But it feels good because you're moving in the direction that God is wanting us to move in. Does that make sense? Just a light head nod if that makes any sense. Okay, good. Um, so the theme uh, for John chapter 9 is strength to weakness. And I want to be very clear, this is not um, weakness and strength with weakness in the rearview mirror or us moving from weakness and away from weakness to strength. This is about strength being driven by weakness. Um, weakness um, being converted into strength. Weakness being utilized for strength. Um, you could even say strength through weakness, right? So keep that in mind as we, as we go through these points. Um, there we go. So first of all, we're going to talk about Sia. Um, Siam Tanda Kulisi uh, was born on the south coast of South Africa. He was born in the township of Zwide, which is in the greater city of Kabecha. Sia was born to a 15-year-old mother. She was not able to take care of him when, when he was born, so she dropped him off with his father, who was 19 years old, also at school. Um, she dropped him off at his father's school, and I'm picturing the stress, the stress of that situation, like coming out of a science class, and they're like, here's your child. Um, he was not in any condition to take care of Sia, so Sia got raised by um, his grandmother in Zwide, and he grew up in poverty. Uh, Sia's grandmother would uh, visit surrounding um, homes and go over for um, you know, some tea time and, and bring back some bits of cookie and bread in her pocket to give to Sia to keep him fed. Um, he recalls being hungry at night where his mom would, um, his grandmother would mix sugar and warm water and give him that to drink to help his, his hunger through the night and get him through to the next day where he got a peanut butter sandwich at school. Um, Sia's dad became an alcoholic. Um, Sia's dad abused his mother, abused drugs. He recalls picking up two of his mother's teeth out of the street after she had been abused by his dad. Um, Sia also had no shoes. He walked to school with no shoes on. He eventually got a pair of his aunt's shoes that fit him. And they made fun of him at school, but he knew that that was better than no shoes. So that was sort of an improvement for him. So Sia grew up in, in poverty, I would say pretty, pretty dire poverty. And I look at that, I look at the facts that I just gave you about Sia and look at his picture. And I, I consider that and I ask myself, like, what could God do with someone like that? Someone who had a start like that, that was that bad. Um, what can God do with that? And then I also ask myself, if someone like that was given an opportunity, what kind of motivation would they have to grasp that type of opportunity? 
Um, Sia did get an opportunity. See, one of the things Sia did in the afternoons, rather than sitting at home and being hungry, he um, played local um, club rugby. He got an opportunity and a break to go to a rugby school um, where he had a friend that took him under his wing and taught him how to speak English as he went through school. And he jokes about wearing um, those silky boxes that were really popular, I think, in the 90s, the, the little ones that sort of came down to over here, and they were always super silky. You all know what I'm talking about? I don't know what their name is here. I just call them silky boxes. Um, Umbros? Okay. So he played in those, and he jokes that that's how the coaches got to watching him around because they saw these silky boxes just sort of running all over the field. Um, but Sia kept working his way up from there. going to go back one. So Sia worked his way through the schoolboy level, the provincial level, and eventually Sia became the first um, black South African Springbok captain in 2018. For a country that was healing from apartheid that ended in 1995, Sia's appointment in 2018 for the first time, quietened the racial noise and antagonism in the sport in the most productive and engaging manner. Who could not support him who represented the least of us? Sia had the whole country watching. There's a couple of things I'm going to add to the detail of the story. So in rugby, um, rugby runs on a four-year cycle. So it's kind of like soccer. And there's a, a, a World Cup, and then you have four years to basically rebuild until the next World Cup. So Sia took over captaincy in 2018. He took over um, arguably the worst Springbok team on record in history. In 2017 and 2016, the team had lost, um, had the worst winning record of, of 120-year history, lost to teams that we had never lost to. Um, we got beaten by our arch rivals, 57-0. It was a bad team that Sia took over. And the World Cup was coming the following year in 2019. So he had less than you know two-year period, effectively you could say it was two and a half years behind his build date to start getting a team prepped to take on the next World Cup. Um, and a new coach was appointed, worked with Sia. They went to the World Cup in Japan. And as the story goes, they won that World Cup. Sorry, I got to get these arrows right. So in 2019, Sia and the Springboks, they lift the trophy in Japan turned around a team that was the worst team on record to a team that, that won, um, won the Rugby World Cup, beating England in the, in the final. Um, and I got to look at the construct of this team that won. So there are other players on the team that have somewhat similar backgrounds to Sia. Um, there's players on the team who were probably destined to be Springboks from the day they were born. They had a Springbok father or a Springbok uncle and were probably coached their whole childhood. Uh, to become a great rugby player one day. And then you have people like Sia who just didn't have any of that. There's another individual on the team. His name was Makazola. And not only did Makazola not have Springbok blood in his family, but Makazola didn't have any family, no relatives alive today that had been lost through violence, uh, car accidents. And Makazola scored the winning touchdown of, of that final. And I think could you imagine having an achievement like that and not having a single family member to share that moment with? My point here is that that team was tight and that team was driven and that team was motivated. 
After 2019, um, Sears Springboks went on to win the Laureus Sports Award. For those of you who don't know, this is a global award. They look at all sports genres and they pick the best team of the year across all sports. Uh, I think the the Chicago Cubs won it in 2017. Shout out to, to Morgan. Um, and so it's this kind of a, this award that says, you know, this team is bigger than their sport. They're the best team in the world. And so that was given um, to the Springboks in, in 2020. And you look at that and say, man, that's incredible that God took someone from Zwede with no shoes and helped him lead the best team in all of sports in the whole world. Uh, what an amazing accomplishment. And what I want to highlight here is you've got um, success on one side or strength, you know, on that side, and it's driven by the motivation of where Sia started. The motivation on the day of that final could not be fabricated by England, right? They, they were motivated for their own reasons, but it didn't match the motivation that the Springboks had because of what they had been through um, and the unity they had within their team. Um, after the, the, the match, there's a post-match presentation. They had the World Cup trophy sitting in front of Sia and the coach, and they asked them, how did you guys deal with the pressure of this occasion for a final? And the answer is really interesting. They said pressure, um, pressure is being hungry and pressure is not having shoes to wear to school and pressure is having a family member murdered. Um, pressure is not having a job. They said rugby is not pressure. Rugby is a privilege. And so my point here is their background was what drove them to strength. Okay. This last point I want to leave you um, with, see, and this is me saying this to you. Say yes to God and let him take over. If you'll see in this middle picture, and I'm not sure if he is praying in this picture, he could be, um, but if you look at, closely at his wrist, every, before every game he wraps his wrist um, in white tape, and then he draws a cross with a sharpie on, on that tape. Um, and he's made it publicly known that before every game, he prays to Jesus and he says, um, Jesus, take over my body. I'm saying yes to you. And when I hear that, that's not the prayer of someone who's um, halfway in. This is someone who's all in, who understands where he is with the spirit and what the spirit is capable of doing inside of him. All right, we're going to move on from Sia. John chapter nine. This is a great chapter about Jesus healing the blind man. Um, this chapter starts out, in a really interesting way, Jesus approaches the blind man with his disciples. The disciples ask him an ultimatum of two questions. Who sinned, this man or his parents? And of course, Jesus says, none of those. Neither of them sinned. That's the wrong question. Um, Jesus makes some saliva on the ground, puts mud in the man's eyes. And the way I read this is the man doesn't see initially. I think he obviously hears Jesus. Maybe he touched Jesus. Well, obviously, Jesus touched him, um, but it doesn't seem like he sees, sees who Jesus is with his eyes. The text says that he, he came home seeing after he washed in the pool, he came home seeing. Um, he gets back to his local community, and that man, that guy, has some striking resemblance to the blind man who was a beggar. And he starts insisting with people, like, that was me. I am that guy. I was the beggar, and now I'm no longer the beggar. As is the theme with Jesus, this um, miracle happened on the Sabbath, so the Pharisees get involved, and um, 
they have questions and they are divided because this is obviously an act of God, but it happens on the Sabbath, which is a sin. And so they're in debate with each other. And what they end up doing is asking the blind man, well, what do you think? I mean, it was your eyes that Jesus opened. Why don't you tell us what you think? Um, and he says, well, you know, I think he's a prophet. And then the Pharisees do what they do quite often, which is kind of mafia-ish. They pull in the family, right? Um, almost like a, a blackmail option. So they pull his parents into the conversation. His parents really um, don't, they, I would say they don't cover for him, but they, you know, they acknowledge that he's their son and then they bounce after that. They don't want to take the responsibility or the risk of getting kicked out of the synagogue. And so they say, yes, this is our son. He was blind from, from birth, but how he was healed, like we don't really want to have any part of that. He's of age, just ask him. So the Pharisees go back to the man. Um, and they start putting pressure on him. They say, we know Jesus is a sinner. Honor God by doing what's right and tell us what we essentially want to hear. And then the man gets the feeling, the blind man gets the feeling, all right, these guys are out for the facts. So he gives them the facts and he says, whether Jesus is a sinner or not, I do not know. Um, but what I do know is that I was blind and now that I see, like there's your facts. You can just sort of sense this grenade go off in the room. So they come back to him again and they say, listen, tell us again what happened. <laughs> and you can sense the blind man getting more and more confidence, right, as the story progresses. Um, and he says, listen, you're asking me this again. Like, I've already told you what happened. He put mud on my eyes, and now I can see. And uh, he starts jeering at them a little bit. And he says, man, are you sure that you guys don't want to be Jesus' disciples as well? Because you're asking me a lot of questions, right? you got a lot of questions about what happened. And so at this stage, I think they realize that he's not going to join their team, right? He's... He's pretty stuck at where he's at. And so they turn the situation toxic and they say, you who are steeped in sin from birth, how dare you lecture us? Get out, right? Essentially kick him out of church. The very thing his parents were petrified of happening to them. Um, they, they kick the blind man out. What happens next is um, to me incredible. So he just gets kicked out of church, right? Their, their version of church and and then he meets with the creator of it all, right? So church and the, and the synagogue, the very structure that was put in place to point people towards who God is, he's now got kicked out of that. But then he immediately afterwards sort of leapfrogs the whole system and starts talking directly with Jesus. It says Jesus found him. And just for a minute, think of from a mathematical standpoint, just think of all the billions of people that have lived on planet Earth. I don't know how many billions that is, but it's a lot. There's a very small subset of that group that were privileged enough to hear the voice of Jesus and to see Jesus in person at that period in history. That's a small subset of people. I'm thinking within the thousands, right? Hundreds of thousands, maybe. Um, and then within that group, there is a tiny few who Jesus searched for, individually looked for to go and find them. He goes after the blind man to find him. He knows he's been kicked out. He goes to find him. Um, 
there's a lot going on at this point because I also think that this is the first time that this blind man is actually going to see Jesus with his sight. So someone is probably new to seeing. I'm imagining seeing things are still generally exciting um, for the blind man. And now he's about to meet what he thinks is the prophet that healed him. Um, that must be an overwhelming experience. And so he meets with Jesus and Jesus says, ask him a question. Do you believe in the son of man? And at this stage, the blind man's all in because he's been kicked out. He knows that Jesus is the guy who helped him and he's a prophet. And so his response is, Lord, just tell me, or he says, just tell me who the, the, the son of man is so that I may believe in him. Like I'm, I'm all in, I'm, I'm ready to go. And then Jesus responds and he says, you have now seen him. And just that would be amazing for us, but for someone who's new to seeing, that's a powerful thing to hear. He says, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Um, the, the point that I don't want us to miss, and this is the highlight of this morning uh, for me, this man was only able to see Jesus because of the weakness that he had, right? There's plenty of people in this story that have perfect eyesight. And you might argue that they've had more of a gift from God because they've had their sight since they were born and have been able to see and distinguish things for longer than the blind man. But they're not the ones who see Jesus. It's the blind man and because of where he came from and the strength that he has because of his weakness that he's able to see Jesus and to be all in on Jesus and to trust Jesus and to worship Jesus in that moment. It didn't take long for him to come around. Um, whoops. In closing, um, my closing thoughts on, on these two individuals as I correlated to the church and where we are today, um, there's so much noise in this world, right? And to me, we try and nullify the noise and move on from the noise and avoid those potholes. But it's that noise and those weaknesses of the world that fuel the strength of the church, right? The church cannot be strong and be in a position of strength unless it has been developed by those weaknesses. Um, when I think of, you know, government structures and societies that we have in place, to a large extent, those rules, those set of rules are just to try and make people nice to each other, right? It's almost like if you want to run a perfect government, you want to tell people to be like Jesus without being able to actually point to Jesus. There are so many rules that we have um, that govern us, for example, not paying someone what you should be paying them. Well, minimum wage, um, gun violence on the streets and people killing each other with weapons, gun control. Um, at a high level, these are all rules to govern people to try and be nice to each other. There's not, I think you probably could have enough rules to stop people killing each other, right? That's probably where jail comes in. You put someone in a box because they're, they're too bad. Um, but you will never have enough rules to make people love each other. There's not a set of rules that you could enforce on me that would force me to love someone else. And so for true change and for true um, conversion from weakness to strength, there has to be a heart for loving people, right? And what a massive opportunity for the church to step in and not meet the world's quota on what these rules should be, but to reset the bar on love and how you love people and how you treat people right and how you accept people. 
Um, that to me, that is where the, the heart of God is and where Jesus says, this is, if you want people to know that you love me and to be my disciples, do this. It's not, it's not a crazy set of rules. Um, it's, I think it's difficult to do, but it's a simple concept um, to love the people around us. Yeah, so there are, there are plenty of potholes in this world, and those potholes are what we can convert into our strength. So we don't like potholes. I'm not advocating that we go and tear up the roads outside. Um, but we're not meant to have smooth sailing through this life. Um, and, and we're meant to help each other. And there's a, there's a plan to get through all of this, and that plan is having Christ, and that's what we have inside of us. To end with, I'm going to touch on... Um, Verses 4 and 5 of John chapter 9. And so this is really, really interesting. So this is directly after they've been introduced to the blind man. And they've asked Jesus the question, who sinned, this guy or his parents? And this is Jesus' response right after that. So he says, neither of them sinned. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Um, while I am in the world, I'm the light of the world. So his response to the question of who's the sinner in the story, you can see that they're trying to identify who the sinner is. And then the Pharisees are trying to say Jesus is the sinner. It's almost like the mindset is wrong. We're just out to prove who's wrong or who's doing something incorrectly. And Jesus' response is not to validate how you point out who the incorrect people are. Jesus' response is let's get to work, right? That's how he treats the situation not by labeling folks, but by saying like, we've got work to do. We've got work to do, get people on board, to get them to see who I am, to get them to see who the father is. So the way I re-paraphrase that verse is night is coming church. When we can no longer work, there will be a period where our work stops. Um, while my spirit is in you, I am the light of the world through you. That's all I got. If this was a Bible class, I would say, are there any questions? But this is not that. So I'll just close us in prayer. Um, I appreciate all of you. Uh, thank you for um, letting me share some thoughts. This has um, been an exciting week for me thinking through these things. Um, but let's pray and we'll be done. God, thank you for this church. Um, Lord, thank you for your spirit that can move in us and through us and help us to understand each other. Um, God, I pray that you would take control of our hands. God, please, would you take control of our bodies and, and please, would you take control of our hearts? Um, we are saying yes to you and this church is saying yes to you. In Jesus, we pray. Amen.